New Money Review podcast, the future of money in 30 minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. We're a periodical covering the changes in money, which are getting faster and more confusing. New types of money arrive out of nowhere, like Bitcoin. Payments get faster and cheaper. Cash goes out of fashion and mobile payments take over. Some people are on the inside track, others risk being left behind. Money attracts the cleverest criminals who always seem to stay ahead of the game. Our podcast takes a big picture look at these trends. It's not just money that's changing, but technology, finance, law, government and society with it. Each week we interview a leading expert on one or more of these topics. By listening to the podcast, you can stay up to date with what's going on in money and prepare yourself for what lies ahead. My guest on this episode of the podcast is fund manager Charlie Morris. Charlie is a long-time gold analyst and he is currently Chief Investment Officer at Byte Tree Asset Management, a firm specialising in digital assets. Charlie also edits the Fleet Street Letter, the oldest investment letter in the UK. So Charlie, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a little bit about yourself and your area of work? Well, thank you for the invitation, Paul. Um, I, I, I um, these days, am the Chief Investment Officer at Bike Tree Asset Management. Um, that's a company that, that that I set up in 2020 to follow on from the data business I set up in 2014, which is to analyze um, uh, crypto assets, essentially uh, strategies revolving around Bitcoin. Um, no doubt we'll, we'll come on to that in due course. But by background, I was I was a, a city veteran of 22 years. I'm the editor of the Fleet Street Letter, which I've been running for um, for the for writing for the last six years, and that basically is um, very much tied to the old world of, of, of equities, bonds, and, and precious metals. Um, and, and prior to that, I've had, I've had three jobs in asset management, the main one being at HSBC for 17 years, where I was head of absolute return, investing in multi-asset portfolios, and more recently at Newscape and Atlantic House. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Charlie, I know, I've known you for, uh, for some time as, as in my previous job as uh, editor at uh, ETF.com, formerly Index Universe. Uh, I was uh, in regular contact with you about ETFs when you were in your job at HSBC. And I have to tell you and remind you, maybe you've, you've forgotten, that you are responsible for introducing me to Bitcoin or one of the people in, uh, responsible. You, you in, a, in a cafe in uh, Piccadilly in London a few years ago, you gave me five pounds worth of Bitcoin onto a blockchain.com account. So thank you very much, Charlie. It's worth a lot more these days. And uh, so there, there, there we go. Well, can I can I apologise? It's, it's probably it's probably made your life worse. <laughs> no, it's been a very interesting journey. So, and I was uh, you, you were one of the first people from let's say traditional finance that you know I was aware of that uh, that took the leap or you know made the took the plunge into cryptocurrency. And so I was very interested to see what you were doing, and I, you know I still am. So. Uh, so, so tell me a bit about your, um, you know, financial analyst uh, analysis work, and you know what, what you've been doing since you started ByteTree. Um, you know, what are the what are the challenges when trying to apply traditional analytical techniques from finance to to cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin? Um, very, very good question. I mean, every every asset's got it got its nuances, hasn't it? And and in this in this case. It's, it's actually quite simple because it's just a network effect situation. And so, you know, I think that the starting point was if you're looking at some sort of um, output from Silicon Valley, which is very much depending on, on having a large audience, a large and growing or growing audience, um, uh, which could be social media st- stocks typically, uh, but, but other applications too, then, then that, that really seems to be the, the, the number one factor that has a very strong correlation with 
um, the price of Bitcoin. And so, you know, essentially it's a network. The more people that use it, the more valuable it becomes. And, and so everything we do is, is centers around that. Okay. So what are the different ways that uh, you, 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 different ways you measure um, the activity on the network? Um, well, the, I think the game back to the early days, and I started looking at the, the Bitcoin blockchain in 2013, you, know, you did simple things like counting the number of transactions, um, uh, uh, and that was incredibly strong. But then transactions have never really managed to get, uh, you know, clo- well, get past three, 3 million a week. And, and that's one of the limitations of blockchain. But of course, the amount of money that can transfer over the blockchain um, is infinite. So, so that is that is uncapped. So, what we've seen is you know fewer larger transactions uh, happening uh, in, in contrast to to you know something like Facebook, where where you haven't necessarily got transactions of of, um, of value, but you've got transactions of information and photos and videos, which just grow exponentially. Um, but I think in Bitcoin, it's the va- it's the value transfer that's taken over, and uh, and that's really the most important thing. So, you've got to measure the amount of money changing hands over the blockchain. And if you think about it, you know, Bitcoin was designed to to transfer value. So it's no great shock that by measuring just that, you get the, the outcome you're looking for. Um, it's not easy to do so because the blockchain doesn't hand you this information on a plate. You have to dig around for it. Um, and, and a simple example I'll give you is that, you know, if, if, if I paid you um, five pounds worth of Bitcoin today, and let's say I, let's say I had a 10 pound Bitcoin piece uh, quote unquote in my in my blockchain wallet, then then you would give me five five pounds change, uh, and that's the way it works. And so you've so you've got to actually do some quite complex analysis um, to filter out all the change. Um, and and some companies have done it, including mine. Uh, we did it first in two thousand and fourteen, and we've been improving our methodology ever since. So what you're saying is that you the the part of the transaction that you you regard as change in in you know in the, in the type of transaction you've described that doesn't count towards the total transaction value. Correct. Okay. Now I'm looking at the Byte Tree uh, terminal on my uh, computer screen, and it says that the total transaction value over the last week uh, on Bitcoin was about twenty seven billion dollars, uh, and that's up from about. 2021 20, billion uh i think over the previous 12 weeks i don't know whether that's an average or, or from 12 weeks ago we, we use so, so we, we use averages for everything basically yeah um, okay I'll, I'll dig a bit into that so what, the reason we use seven days everything's you know built around weeks and we're the only firm that does this um, everyone else sort of gives you messy daily stuff but the, the, our data is real time but we smooth everything over a working week uh, sorry not a working week a, a calendar week because uh, there's a weekday bias. There's a very strong weekday, weekday bias in the data. And you would typically, not always, but typically, I mean, this weekend's been, been an exception, but you would typically see uh, transaction activity drop by around 35 to 40% at weekends compared to a typical weekday, which is no great shock, is it, as people want to relax on a, on a Saturday or a Sunday. And so if you look at daily data, you get, you get a natural skew. Um, which which you know makes Mondays look too good and Saturdays too bad, and so therefore by by having rolling live data over seven days, you solve that problem. So most of our statistics we present that way, uh, but not all. Okay, and you're, you're, so from what you said earlier, um, that to me implies uh, that um, for Bitcoin to be useful and to prove its value, it has to be used by um, by people transacting it, and so and you know by I guess by by extension, um, you know, people hoarding Bitcoin would be bad news for the health of the network over the long term. 
Well, there's a balance between all these things. You know, it, it, it's complex. I mean, I think what you're getting at here, Paul, is the is the whole sort of um, the price goes up because everyone buys it. Uh, well, I, I just saw uh, something you'd written a couple of months ago. Um, in, in, I mean, I can quote you in a recent interview with a senior blockchain strategist on a leading crypto news channel. The discussion suggested that low velocity implied high hodls. So hodl, you know, hodl is Bitcoinese for holding, um, and therefore justified high valuations. That is 100% nonsense. So you're saying that if it has low velocity and people are not doing much except kind of buying it and sitting on it, that's not. Uh, that doesn't make for a healthy network. No, no, it's not. I mean, in the short term, it is. Of course, if someone comes and buys a billion dollars of Bitcoin, the price goes up. I mean, no, no one's going to dispute that. But the, but the network um, creates value by being a network. And so someone, you know, buying a whole chunk of it and, and parking it um, is, is in the short term useful, but in the long term, not necessarily value creating. It, it's lots and lots of activity. And I think if you wanted to maximize the value of Bitcoin, the, the whole overall network, you'd have as many people as possible um, being, you know, engaged on a regular basis. And um, so if you take too many coins out of the network, then that to some extent damages that. Now, I'm not suggesting you can't have any coins come out of the network. Of course, that's tightening it, and that, that's a good thing. Um, but don't forget that, you know, people who buy lots and lots of Bitcoin for, for investment purposes are potential sellers in the future. So you might create value today, but you might detract value um, at, a, at a later date. But it's, it's a complex, it's a complex equation. Uh, between supply dynamics, which are basically fixed, but but investment flows come and go. So in that sense, they're not quite so fixed. Um, and, and, and demand uh, dynamics and also the operations of miners. And, and the economic influences of, of all of them um, have, have, have their own um, interpretations. And it's, you know, it's a bit of a complex beef, but I guess I've been kicking the tires of the blockchain for the last seven years. So, so I'm starting to get my head around it. Yeah, and of the other metrics that you at uh, and your colleagues at ByteTree look at, you know, I can see that there there are sort of uh, six main um, uh, metrics you look at: transaction value, fees as a percentage of transactions, fair value, velocity, um, MRI, and that's what's the and that that's, well, that's five rather. You have the gauges. I think the gauges yeah. are just a sort of quick look. They're designed yeah. to, to have, have a quick peek and and, and see where we are. Um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're all having a look at different things. So fees are very, very important because they basically tell you how much to supply and demand there is for transaction activity, not necessarily for value transfer. So at the moment, the blockchain is very busy with institutional big money coming in, and that's all very exciting. Um, but but we're not seeing we're not seeing a, a, a boom in in, um, in in transaction activity. And you could argue that that as I wrote in my piece last week, that that's what you saw. Was was a lot of excitement in in sort of mid October that pushed the fees up, and, and the fees can go all the way to twelve. You know, went all the way to twelve dollars. They're now just below four. But when you're at twelve dollars, you choke off a lot of traffic, of lower end traffic, and um, the, you know the average Bitcoin transaction is probably about one hundred and forty bit changes, but it's about one hundred and forty dollars. Um, and, and of course, the larger transactions can be in the hundreds of millions. So you know, hundreds of millions don't care about twelve dollars, but one hundred one hundred and forty dollars does. Yeah. So, why is the average Bitcoin transaction still so small? One hundred forty dollars, uh, you know, with a four four dollar transfer fee, doesn't seem like a great way of, great way of managing your money. But a you know a billion dollar transaction with a four dollar transaction fee is uh, obviously completely different. Uh, well, the, uh, the, case. The, the, the truth the truth is, you know, this is this is a 
Uh, it's not a secret network. I mean, you can you can follow the money quite easily by you know with analysis like we do. But knowing exactly what what people are doing on the blockchain has been one of one of the you know one of the endeavors we've, we've been trying to figure this out for a long time. And you know you, you can pick up all sorts of different types of traffic, so you can see what's engaging with exchanges, which is clearly speculative. Um, and, and then and then for example, we we also publish. Uh, complex transaction value, and so complex transactions are, are, are deliberately uh, obfuscated. So, you, so you can't. So, so you're, you're you're moving large amounts of money around together, not quite knowing who's tra- trading and who's not. And so, it's very very difficult for an analytics firm to um, to, to 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 follow the money. Um, and, and then batch transaction value. So, pe- people who want to transact more cheaply and efficiently put their transactions together and share the fee. Um, which, which is obviously something that's been growing quite rapidly. So there's always an innovation. Whenever there's a problem on the blockchain, there's always a whole load of innovation that comes back um, and, and solves problems. And I think people should never underestimate uh, the power of human in- ingenuity, which just really is quite incredible in this space. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, well, you spent a, uh, you know, a, a, a long time in um, asset management before moving to focus on cryptocurrency. We seem to have moved... You know, 180 degrees in the last few few years from kind of near total skepticism from established firms to you know a great deal of interest. I mean, looking at the recent comments from a senior figure at BlackRock, um, you know, the last week's uh, entry by Northern Trust, one of the world's leading custodians, into crypto custody. You know, Wells Fargo made some positive um, comments last week. You know, have we? Is that is that now kind of the accepted wisdom amongst? Uh, you know, city institutions and asset managers around the world, or is there still a, f- a fair amount of scepticism still amongst uh, a number of those uh, firms? I think one um, percent. Talking about institutional investors, I would say one percent are engaged, and um, and it depends whether you ask them privately or publicly. So, with their work hat on, ninety nine percent are skeptical, um, but of those, several will probably own some Bitcoin personally. So I think it's a very different view. When they're wearing a suit, uh, and, and when you meet them at the weekend, right? So they're 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 privately more interested than they are saying in public. I think so because the group think of large institution is still to be yeah. skeptical of the space, and, and that's fine because you know, frankly, when everyone's on board, then it's probably time to go and find something else. It's a ten year process to get there. I mean, Paul, you remember the gold market back in two thousand and two three. Um, it was a very exciting time to, to 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 look at gold, and you kind of got the argument and said something's changing. This thing's too cheap, and 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 the printing begins. It was it was rate slashing in those days, where now it's become outright printing. And um, you couldn't own gold in a obviously gold had been around for five thousand years. It wasn't invented in two thousand and two, but but it, it, you couldn't really put it in a portfolio because they hadn't solved the, the the custody problem, and that was that was that was solved by Graham Tuckwell with the with the gold ETF and what a spectacular success that was. But, you know, it took a long time for people just to sort of take gold seriously. And, and, and now it's quite normal for a 60-40 to have a couple of percent in gold. Um, you know, no one raises, you know, batters an eyelid anymore. And, um, you know, so, so I, I would say there's room for loads more gold in portfolios because I think people are still structurally underweight given um, the, the, the probability, the likelihood of um, higher inflation in the future. Um, but Bitcoin really is where gold is on that sort of institution adoption curve of where of where um, of where gold was in two thousand two three. So it's it, it's a decade. It's a decade to, to to make this sort of thing mainstream from the investors' perspective. 
So, so we're not at the boring stage yet. You know, the institutions are still just dipping their toes, and there's I, you think, think it's a, a, fair, a fairly long way ahead before it becomes a conventional I think asset to people's portfolios. I, I, I think 2020 was the year that um, the, the the start gun for institutional investment. And I know there's been a yeah. couple of ETPs. Uh, well, there's been there's been the the coin shares product in Sweden that's been around for a while, um, and, and Grayscale in the states have been around for a while, but. Um, but actually, for, you know, looking at sort of proper institutional takeoff, I, I would say we'd always look back to 2020 is where that began. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that I was interested by your comments about uh, gold uh, exchange traded products and, you know, their creation in the early 2000s by you know, Graham Tuckwell, helping to, you know, to, to move many, many new investors into that market in their pension plans and so on. Um, does Bitcoin need to, or another other cryptocurrencies? Do they need to be wrapped in an exchange traded product, or can people just? Isn't it better for the people just to buy them directly and you know hold their keys securely? You know why go to the effort of putting a uh, an exchange traded product wrapper around it? Well, you don't need to. I mean, you really don't. But most people haven't got much money outside of their pension fund. You know, many people are absolutely loaded in their pension fund, um, but outside of their pension fund, they're they're, they're sort of paying the paying the mortgage and looking after the children. So. Um, it, 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 it's, it's, that's where the money is, basically, for, for, for the general public. And, um, and so that, that, that would obviously need a, a, some sort of regulated product to, to, to get there. In, in the United Kingdom, of course, the, the, those Bitcoin products um, are, are offside with the regulator at the moment. Well, I hope that changes at some point in the future. But of course, with private money, you know, you just go and buy Bitcoin. You open an account with an exchange, you open a wallet, um, and for very, very low cost, you can you just buy Bitcoin with very little friction and no holding cost. You can do that, and that's part of the beauty of the system. And that eludes most people. Most people would be very confused by the process. And so they use a vaulting service, something like Coinbase. Um, but then, you know, if you're even more old school, um, which is the vast majority, then they, then they have complete faith in the ETF, which, let's face it, has been the most successful financial innovation of the 21st century. Yes, what, what, let's talk, I'd like to ask about gold uh, a bit because uh, you've been following this market uh, for many years and have been writing about it for many years. Um, what do you make of you know the, the what happened to the gold market uh, earlier this year with a you know complete dislocation of prices um, between London and New York during the you know, the worst of the coronavirus uh, panic? Um, is that is that something to worry about, or is it just a kind of a temporary um, dislocation that you know, I, I is don't kind of understandable in the, in the circumstances? When markets have a shock. And, um, and and they're, they're sort of you know quite quite used to these days you know a VIX spike or whatever there's a, there's uncertainty for whatever reason and it's always something new because you know when the last thing happens again no one no one worries about it quite so much because the world didn't end and so anything that um, that, that can't kill you makes you stronger and so so shocks are always something new and and probably very rarely or if not never something that's been widely talked about. Um, so, you know, a virus was a, was a bit of a new one and uh, no one's really thinking about that. And if you looked at everyone's top 10 risks, top 100 risks, so, you know, for the previous few years, I don't think anyone had mentioned a virus. So um, it, it, was, it was a genuine shock. And when you have a shock, particularly one that, that heavily influenced um, logistics, which it did in March, you remember, you know, people are flying now, but, but, but they really weren't in March. There was, a, there was a proper lockdown. And so it was just a matter of physical settlement. You know, the market, the, you know, the wheels... Um, of, of the gold market, the inner, the inner workings were, you know, were not being greased, and um, so you get these sorts of things, and and it's quite normal in in a financial crisis of, of sorts to have spreads widen and you know diff- more difficult to trade and get things done. It's 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 what happens, and, and of course when they when the Fed came in and and 
um, uh, and, and added liquidity, the, the spreads came in as they always do. And it would be, I mean, the good old days that you'd have, you know, shell shares in, um, in, in, in Amsterdam and in London. And the spreads would widen during a crisis, even though they're the same thing. It's exactly the same. The gold in London and gold in New York is the same thing um, as shares in the Netherlands and uh, uh, shell shares in the Netherlands and shell shares in London. But whenever there was a panic, those spreads would always widen. Um, It even happens in the gilt market between the you know the benchmark bonds and the off the run bonds. So it's it's normal, and, and I wouldn't worry about it at all. Yeah, um, you know how um, how does Bitcoin measure up as a competitor to gold or or as a complement to gold within people's portfolios? Um, I, I would say that you know Bitcoin was very much born as a tech stock, and um, that makes it the opposite of gold. Because I once wrote a piece on gold and growth and said if you if you take a whole load of growth stocks or or some kind of momentum long term momentum strategy which tends to focus on gold on growth stocks not always at the current cycle massively so but not always during history um if, if, you, if you rebalance a, a gold and growth portfolio you have a pretty pretty good outcome um because obviously tech bubbles blow up from time to time as they did in the early 70s and, and the early noughties and uh, and so that's normal and then gold knows how to blow up as well like it did in 1980 when when you know real money comes back to the fore so if you can blend these two things that are naturally uncorrelated that's quite strong now, Bitcoin's sort of grown up slightly from being a, a pure growth stock um, and, and does seem to have some sort of macro sensitivities. So, for example, if you look at its price behavior over the last decade, you would associate 95% of Bitcoin's price appreciation with periods of rising or stable inflation and rising or stable bond yields. Now, that's in a period where bond yields and inflation have been falling steadily. And so whenever, whenever they have stopped falling and even managed to rise, well, that's when Bitcoin's um, uh, you know, ha- had the most fun. And, and when we've been in a risk-off environment, like, like in March this year, uh, during the COVID crisis and uh, at other times, you know, Bitcoin hasn't liked it at all. Um, so, so I think you, know, you, you can't escape the fact that, that Bitcoin can't bear the idea of deflation and, and um, uh, collapsing bond yields and risk-off. It's very much a risk-on asset. And so, you know, I, I, I sorry to interrupt you, Charlie. So I was just think I wanted to ask you that point about negative interest rates because the, you know, if if uh, central banks' money printing efforts don't work and don't manage to stimulate activity after the, all the shocks we've had this year, and we move into a prolonged period of, of negative interest rates, I saw last week that the number of you know, the, the total value of bonds with negative yields has just again gone to a new high. It's like something like a quarter of all the high-grade, uh, investment-grade bonds in the world and our negative yields. Let's imagine that rates you know, are, are below zero you know, all around the place, you know, from the, the Japan, Eurozone, even to the UK, and maybe even to the US. Uh, wouldn't that be a kind of a positive for, for gold and Bitcoin? You're, you're not, you're not uh, if you hold Bitcoin or hold gold, you're not uh, suffering any erosion of your capital value, whereas your money on a bank account suddenly would start to lose value. I suppose so, but but untested, I'd say so far. For gold, certainly that's a bonus. I mean, because we know how gold behaves, we know it likes negative real interest rates. But the, but the evidence for that around Bitcoin is less strong. You know, as I say, I think I think that um, uh, Bitcoin, uh, sorry, gold likes inflation risk off. The time when gold outperforms. If you think of, if you think of an asset of its outperformance and underperformance rather than its up or downness, up or down is very much to do with the monetary environment. Um, and the liquidity coming into markets, but the but the you know the relative performance of gold um, it tends to outperform when when things are going badly, the economy is sort of slowing and so on. 
and the um, and inflation is rising. Now, we, we, we rarely have that combination, but the perfect storm for gold would be negative interest rates and high inflation. Um, that's that's how it would roof it. And, and you'd see sort of, you know, multiples, you know, the gold price would go up by multiples in that environment. Now, it, it hasn't happened in the Western world, but it has happened in hyperinflations in the past. And, 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 and that would indeed work, I think. But Bitcoin does, does seem to like, like the inflation trade, but it likes to be risk on. And so that is an inherent difference. And so I do think that the debate whether you should own Bitcoin or gold is, is, is kind of stupid because you want to own both. And it's really yeah. the argument is, you know, what's your allocation between them? And I think that in a sense, when I said, you know, I started saying that, 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 that Bitcoin is not exactly gold, it might become it one day. Let's say in 10 years when every institution um, owns this thing and then another 10 years every central bank owns this thing, then possibly at that point we can call it a monetary asset and it would behave like gold. You know, what, what would it need to do? Well, let's say there are 100 million Bitcoiners in the world, but there are 2,000 gold bugs, you know, whether it's a wedding ring or, or what have you. Um, the gold market has daily liquidity of practically 150 billion dollars. The, the Bitcoin market sort of three to five billion, um, uh, and and gold has uh, volatility of between 15 and 20 percent on average over time, whereas Bitcoin would be sort of 40 percent plus most of the time. So you, you, you know, Bitcoin's got a lot of growing up to do. Um, essentially, it's got to grow its network 50 times. And, and yeah. then, then we can start saying, you know, all oh, these two things are in competition. But even so, they'll have they'll they'll you know still serve different purposes for different reasons and, and yeah. easily coexist. So uh, I, I think that the, the you know the, your your Bitcoin gold portfolio is, is is kind of a better conversation. Equally, your Bitcoin growth stocks portfolio. So if you're wondering how to own Bitcoin, you know, what, mentally how to own Bitcoin or why to own Bitcoin, you can say, well, I, I I've got ten percent in the fangs. Well, I might donate some of that to Bitcoin. I might say, you know, the fangs are a bit overdone. I might take a couple out, a couple of percent out there, and put some Bitcoin in. Or you might say, but well, I've got quite a lot of gold, and, and, and I'll carve a little, a little place with some Bitcoin there. Uh, but in both cases, I think it's the minority of your allocation to either growth or um, gold. You know, you don't, you don't need to have much Bitcoin to be right, because if, if, if the narrative from the mega bulls is correct, then then you know, just a couple of percent will will, will see you through, and yeah. if it goes wrong couple of percent you know not the end of the world yeah and, and uh does it then also follow that some of the younger generation who've you know grow, been growing up with cryptocurrencies for the last few years might want to you know, look at gold as a diversifier for their own uh, holdings yeah i mean i would say to, I, I think they should i mean i think that pe- people should you know be be, be sort of open-minded about this debate i mean i, I maybe i'm too 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 close to this conversation, which maybe some of your listeners aren't aware of, but there's a, a lot of Bitcoin maximalists who just think that that gold's absolutely useless. And, and um, but yeah, I, there were quite a few comments last week on on Twitter. I saw that uh, kind of written gold off, and I, I thought it was a, it's a bit uh, it's jumping the gun a bit. You know, Bitcoin's yeah, yeah. twelve years old, and gold is five thousand years old, or well, several billion years old if you count where it came from. But yeah, uh, if you left it in the ground, yes, and um, that and, and equally some some of the sort of uh, you know the establishment, and let's face it: most most people think both gold and Bitcoin are nonsense. Yeah, I mean, most most of the establishment, um, particularly in the developed world, just don't take them either asset class very seriously. I mean, no central banker will you know say will start recommending. Now, no one at the Bank of England thinks we should rebuild our gold holdings, but but they're all saying that in the emerging market um, central bank, they've all got a strategy around it. So there's very different views depending where you are in the world. Um, and I, I, I think that it, it's ridiculous, equally, to to write off Bitcoin as a as a 
as a crazy upstart, if you're a bit of a gold bug, I think that both should have respect for each other's um, uh, uh, purpose that they serve. And 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 there'll be you know quite obviously a, a middle ground to be found. I mean to take into to, to make the point, gold ETFs are about two hundred billion dollars. Bitcoin's market cap, and there's no such thing as market cap, is three hundred and fifty billion dollars. Now it's not really because one and a half million bitcoins have never come to market, so it actually comes from three hundred and fifty to about to about three hundred and twenty or so. And then there's probably around five or six million bitcoins that have been lost, or have, you know, no one really knows where they are, or haven't moved in a very long time, presumed lost. And suddenly you end up with a couple of hundred billion dollars, and you realise that all the gold in the BTS is is about the same as the as the entire Bitcoin market if you if you um, measure its network network value, which means coins that probably exist as opposed to coins that have once been mined, many of which are lost. Hmm. Hmm. And as we you know look come to the end of the year, it's been a you know traumatic year in many ways. Um, you know what what are you focusing on? Um, you know both work wise and, and personally as we move into twenty twenty one. Well, um, Biotech Asset Management's got some projects. So we've had a we we, we put a product on um, on token sets, a sort of copy platform, and um, and that, we did that in February. And that's basically a, a, a Bitcoin strategy. So we just buy it when our data says buy it and sell it when it says um, sell it. And and to us, it's sort of second nature because I think we have a deep understanding of how these things work. But it's it's you know it's taken it's taken us by surprise really on how well it's done. Um, which has done twice, twice as well as Bitcoin. I think the top of my head, the, the, the strategies, um, the, the strategy is about two hundred percent, whereas Bitcoin is about one hundred and ten this year. So that product's done extremely well, and and we're we're putting a sort of advanced version of that into a into a hedge fund. Now, I can't talk about this because um, it, you know this is a public conversation. But the, you know, Bytree, on the Bytree website, there are details if you, if, you, if you're if you're a credited investor. So that's a product we're launching soon, um, and then we're looking at other things into twenty twenty one. Um, very much around this space, but I haven't forgotten the old world. I mean, I think at some point you said I'd left the, the old world. No, I know I haven't. I write the Fleet Street Letter every week, which is which is very much um, shares and, um, uh, and precious metals and bonds and ETFs and funds at discounts and all sorts of things. And, and that's had a, a very very good year as well. So the investment side of things have been great this year, and we look forward to doing more things next year. Um, as for Christmas, personally. Well, I just wish it would stop raining, and, and I, wish, <laughs> I wish some people could come round to my house, and, and and I wish I could go to their house, and um, and 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 I and I just wish twenty twenty would you know get behind us as soon as possible, and we can have a more enjoyable twenty twenty one. Yeah, yeah. So same, same here. All right, Charlie. Well, it's been great to catch up, and thanks for sharing your thoughts on all, all these interesting topics. Uh, uh, happy, happy Christmas, and uh, look forward to catching up uh, sometime soon. Happy Christmas to you too. Thank you. Okay, take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. You can find a write-up of this episode at our website, newmoneyreview.com, together with links to any important documents or sites mentioned during the discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so via Patreon or using cryptocurrency. 
Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website.